Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For all the pandemic's economic upheaval, some sectors have done well, namely video gaming. This week, the industry's giants are releasing their latest consoles. But a far bigger prize is now in sight, cloud gaming, with no need for a console at all. And every year before the anniversary of the end of the First World War, lapels are adorned with bright red poppies. But in Britain, it's far more than just lapels. Whole towns dress up with poppy displays, and it's starting to get pretty competitive. First up, though. President-elect Joe Biden has put tackling climate change at the top of his agenda. So today, I'm announcing my plan for a clean energy revolution. He's pledged to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement on his first day in office. It outlines what we have to do to meet this challenge head-on and how we're going to get there. With America, China and the European Union on board, hitting the Paris target seems more plausible, limiting temperature rises to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. There's still a long way to go in the battle to cut down on greenhouse gas emissions. But there's hope that Mr. Biden's presidency could mark a turning point in the fight against climate change. So Mr. Biden has made climate change central to his campaign and also importantly, in both speeches that he delivered at the end of last week, he mentioned climate change in a list of top priorities. Katrine Breik is The Economist's environment editor. So he's clearly taking climate change on a level with COVID, public health, Uh, The economy and racial equity is is the four issues that he intends to focus on right from the get-go. And that's very promising. So what what do those policies look like in detail? What is it he's, he's actually promising to do? So there's a long laundry list of policies. The headline figure that everybody is looking for, of course, is he has long promised to bring America back into the Paris Agreement. As soon as he walks into the White House, he's going to accompany that with some kind of net zero emissions by 2050 target. He will be expected to submit a plan, a milestone target in the 2030s. Domestically, he's talked about decarbonizing the electricity grid by 2035. There is a $2 trillion pledge to renewable energy, huge investment in climate R&D, phase out of fossil fuels. There's talk of restoring electric vehicle tax credits, fuel economy standards. All of this adds up to, frankly, a very ambitious plan. 
This initiative will create more than 10 million new good paying jobs all across the clean economy in the United States of America. It's an enormous opportunity. Ambitious, yes, but to, to your mind, how, uh, how feasible is all of this? So the big question on everybody's mind is how much of this plan he'll be able to enact if he is working with a Republican-led Senate. There is some confidence that he won't be as stifled, perhaps, as the Obama administration, simply because uh, he has a good track record in working across the aisle. And I think also the public perception of climate change is very different at the minute to what it was when Obama was in the White House. So in exit polls, for instance, two-thirds of American voters said that they considered climate change to be a key problem. In his climate plan, in his campaign plan, Biden actually talks of a 2025 target, so things that he could achieve within his first term in office. Everybody I've spoken to agrees that that's very ambitious, but I think if he does actually make those targets, it will go some way to giving the international community confidence that America is once more going to be able to lead in the climate arena. But you mentioned a lot of this is contingent on who ends up in in control of of the Senate. I mean, how will things play out if it ends up not being controlled by the Democrats? Uh, So a divided Congress is going to make ambitious new carbon cutting legislation at the federal level very challenging. President Trump is obviously famous for his rollbacks of Obama-era climate rules. Much of that was done by executive action, and the Biden administration can basically reverse that damage. But it's also important to note that the central piece of environmental regulation in the U.S., the Clean Air Act, is still there, and it's very much a uh, an instrument that we know Biden can and will be working with. And among many other things, Biden has also said that he will stop leasing any new oil and gas rights on federal land, for example. And what about his plans on an international level, given that this is now very much an international cooperation kind of enterprise? Do we know how he's planning to work with other big emitters? Now, as part of reintegrating the Paris Agreement, he is going to have to submit new national pledges to cut carbon emissions. I think once he's done that, another piece of this puzzle is how he starts to work very closely with allies in Europe. Uh, how he starts to resume talks with China about their efforts to cut emissions. And I think really this is where the power of having a Biden administration is going to become clear. You will now have roughly half of global emissions under China, the European Union and America that are all pulling towards an aggressive decarbonization of their economies by mid-century. And this week was supposed to be the big UN powwow on climate, the Conference of the Parties, postponed this year because of the pandemic. Does that affect the momentum here? Yeah, funnily enough, I actually think it's probably ended up being a good thing. The goal of the next COP is to really raise ambition on national targets to cut emissions. 
I think the COVID crisis may actually have, in part because we now have all of these recovery plans, stimulated governments to come forward with more ambitious plans. We've seen in the last two months, major economies come forward, including importantly China, with their mid-century targets. And now the US has had time to to leave and eventually re-enter the Paris Agreement. So I actually think there's there's a bit of a silver lining to the dark cloud of COP26 being put off to 2021. So given that some of the world's biggest emitters are more aligned in their goals, do you see this as a turning point in the narrative? Um, look, I think the climate challenge is enormous and should never be understated. We're getting closer, but we are still some ways off the Paris Agreement's goal of stabilizing the climate at somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. Current forecasts are 2.3 to 2.4. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But I think in terms of the geopolitics of it, this moment is definitely one that is worth celebrating. I think seeing all of those major economies pulling in the same direction the growing interest and awareness of climate risks amongst the private and corporate sectors, the huge interest among voters. I mean, let's not forget that this was probably the first US election where climate change was a voting issue. Um, I think all of that does definitely add up to an inflection point, and it's incumbent on governments and the private sector to now seize the opportunity that is in front of them. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Climate change is gaining relevance in just about every aspect of human endeavor. It's geopolitical, it's financial, it's quite possibly existential. Whatever the analytical angle, you'll find it in The Economist. Get a great deal on a subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. With many still cooped up at home amid the pandemic, demand for both will be high. But even as they compete with each other, both firms will be keeping their eyes on new rivals. With sales soaring and cloud computing on the rise, Amazon, Facebook, and Google are all suiting up for battle. Even for an industry that had been growing by about 9% a year, 2020's been a barnstorming year. Tim Cross is our technology editor. 
I spoke to one set of analysts at NewZoo, who are a games industry analysis firm, and they reckon the industry will be worth about $175 billion globally by the end of this year, which is 20% up on where it was last year. And I think a lot of them were expecting a boost from COVID, but the scale of that boost has maybe caught them by surprise. So Microsoft's new Xbox was launched yesterday. The new PlayStation comes out tomorrow. Which do you think is going to, to win that battle? I think it's quite likely to be a repeat of the previous round of the console wars, which I think everyone now agrees Sony won. Sony publishes official sales figures, and it reckons it sold uh, a little bit over 100 million PlayStation 4s in the seven years the console's been around, and maybe a billion games. Microsoft, it's a little bit harder to tell because they don't publish official sales figures. But if you talk to analysts, I think the consensus is that they maybe sold half as many Xbox Ones as, as Sony sold PlayStations. And because Console gaming in particular, you know, tends to be quite tribal. I think people who bought a PlayStation last time will probably buy a PlayStation this time and and the same for Xboxes and so on. So I think it's a reasonably safe bet that Sony will probably outsell Microsoft this time around as well. Just as a matter of, of brand loyalty, effectively. Partly a matter of brand loyalty. And I think partly also the strategy that the firms are pursuing. So if you look at Sony, they seem to be pursuing quite a traditional console strategy where lots of analysts think, for instance, they're selling the machine at a loss and then relying on exclusive big budget games to make that money back later. So they're heavily emphasizing, you know, a bunch of games that are only available on the PlayStation 5. So if you want to play Demon's Souls, say, uh, which is one of the launch titles, you have to buy a PlayStation 5 to do that. Microsoft, if you talk to them, they'll say to you explicitly, oh, we're not so bothered about how many consoles we sell as such. They say they're more interested in expanding the market. So there's maybe only a couple of hundred million households worldwide that have the money and the inclination to pony up for a $300, $400 console and a bunch of $60 games to play on it. But gaming's much broader than just consoles. So there are 3 billion people or more than that around the world who own smartphones. And if you look at the smartphone business, games are some of the most popular apps that people play. So Microsoft strategy is more about can we convert some of these maybe more casual game players into the kind of people who might be drawn into the Xbox ecosystem? Well, the somehow is the question. There are several ways they're trying to do this. So there's a higher purchase deal for the Xbox, for instance. You can pay it off in comparatively small chunks every month. They're heavily promoting this thing called Game Pass, which is a subscription service. But I think the centerpiece of this strategy is something called xCloud, which tries to take this to its logical conclusion and remove the need to own a dedicated console at all. It's something called game streaming, where the games are actually run in distant data centers and the results are piped to any internet-connected screen. Maybe the best way to understand it is it's a bit like Netflix in the early days. So In the early days of Netflix, they would send you DVDs through the mail. So it was a subscription service, but you still needed a piece of hardware. And then what what really made Netflix take off was when they got video streaming working. This is what Microsoft uh, is trying to do with xCloud. But when we've talked about this on the show in the past, the streaming approach to gaming didn't look all that feasible simply because it's fast-paced stuff. It's not just someone sitting there watching a movie on Netflix. Well, yeah, the, the difference is that the system has to be able to react such that, you know, if I press a button that button press has to go all the way across the internet to the data center. The computer has to work out, you know, what that means, and it makes Mario jump or whatever. And then that has to come all the way back down the internet to me. And if that journey is too long, then the game will feel sort of laggy and unresponsive. And of course, if your internet connection is a little bit flaky and it cuts out, then the game is just going to stop completely. People have been toying with this idea and trying to make it work since the late 2000s. 
But Microsoft are now convinced, you know, they're one of the world's biggest cloud computing operators. So they're now convinced that their cloud infrastructure is sort of sufficiently nifty and sufficiently widely spread that they can make this work. And of course, they aren't the only ones. Lots of the big tech giants are piling into the game streaming idea now. So I think we're starting to see some sort of jockeying for position because if this does take off, it could be pretty transformative. You wouldn't then need an expensive console to play a video game. You just need something like a smartphone and a controller that you can hook up to it. Some of the analysts I spoke to said it's not unrealistic to think that if this if this does take off, you could grow the market tenfold in the long run. But changing the business model kind of changes the game a bit, as it were, in the sense that it won't be the console kings who are the winners in the end. I think it changes the business model a lot if you assume that this does take off. And we should say, you know, most of the people in this business think that even if this does take off, we're talking, you know, four or five years from now rather than instantly. But if we assume that that will happen, I think it could very well go the same way that the film and TV and, and music businesses have gone, where it becomes less about the hardware and more about the content. So if you're liberated from the requirement to have a sort of specific console or a specific piece of hardware, then the only thing that exists really to differentiate the different services are which games you can play on them. With that in mind, then, I mean, how will the grid look in the long run, do you think? I think the two big things to keep an eye on are cloud infrastructure and the content. So, you know, to make this work, you need a global network of data centers. And Microsoft has that, Google has that, Amazon has that. And then the second factor is what content do you have? So again, Microsoft has that. None of the other companies have that sort of magic combination. But then Sony, Nintendo, even though they're sort of tiddlers compared to the tech giants, they do have that big library of historic games. Amazon definitely have the cloud shops. They're weaker when it comes to content. Similarly with Google, they understand cloud computing. They don't necessarily have the content library that some other companies do, but they do have YouTube. Gaming videos are very, very popular on YouTube. It's sort of a center of video gaming culture. People play a lot of games on Facebook already, sort of casual browser-based games. And their service, the idea seems to be to build on that rather than to start with the sort of big, glitzy AAA console games and work down from there. So I think it's too early to say who's going to win, but um, I think there are a lot, of, a lot of serious competitors. Thanks very much for joining us, Tim. Thanks, Jason. Today is Remembrance Day marking the end of the First World War. Vast swathes of Western Europe's countryside was bombed in wartime, turned to mud, a scene where not much could grow, except for bright red poppies, which flourished even in the midst of destruction. So poppies became a way of remembering the war, particularly in Britain. We break into our review of the news to express the hope that you'll buy at least one of the poppies made by men wounded in the last and the present wars to commemorate Remembrance Day. But in recent years, commemoration has gotten competitive. If you cast your mind back to those years following the First World War, Britain's developed this system of wearing poppies around the week of the 11th of November, and a two-minute silence was observed at the 11th minute of the 11th hour. Elliot Keim is our Britain correspondent. Some soldiers were sceptical or too psychologically scarred and initially didn't want to attend parades, but eventually restraint and respectability got them out on the streets. And while the nation remembers the million dead, it is well too that we should not forget those living, the men who, 20 years after, bear the scars of Europe's tragic mistakes. There was these amazing marches of former soldiers through towns and villages across the country wearing their old medals. But then by the early 2000s, there were only 120 Great War veterans still alive, and many predicted that parades would die with them. 
But that's not happened. In fact, the further away we've got from the First and Second World Wars, the more British people want to celebrate them. How do you mean? How has the appetite for this increased since? Well, Remembrance Days have got much more extravagant. You can kind of trace it back to the Tower of London's 2014 Remembrance installation. It marked a century since the First World War broke out and featured 888,246 handcrafted ceramic poppies, each one representing a casualty from Britain and its colonies. And ever since then, things have taken a turn for the competitive. So small towns and villages really go all out now. They make extravagant and abstract displays. Each one will claim that they're the best and they have some credit in kick-starting the process. One of those is Pelshaw, which is a village in the West Midlands who first hit headlines in 2015 for making 1,500 knitted poppies. A town councillor, one of the town's officials, told me ever since then they've become a poppy village. But now others are edging in as well. How so? What's on deck for this year? Well, some towns and villages, they now spend the large parts of the year planning events for November 11th. Bolton in Greater Manchester, they've got 12 giant poppies that have been painted onto strategic thoroughfares throughout the borough. In Callington, a town in Cornwall, 9,000 knitted poppies now float down a church wall. And this year after dark, in my hometown of Melksham in Wiltshire, an animation of a poppy fading into love hearts plays continually on a loop on the town hall's facade. So what do you think is going on here? Is this just another manifestation of a sense of competition? Is there a greater sense of patriotism? Is this social media driven? I think competition definitely plays its part, but the boom in remembrance artistry has also coincided with a resurgence of patriotism. The councillor in Pelshaw, Gary Perry, told me that there was a period in this country where you were afraid to show your nationalism. But now, he says, villages like mine want to be able to keep the traditions that they're proud of. That's also coincided with a surge in how people see the armed forces. They're much more enthusiastic about them. So keeping the tradition alive and allowing creativity to flourish, you can really make your village or town stand out as a symbol of patriotism. So you see this continuing then, a sort of, pardon the phrase, an arms race that's only going to escalate? Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's been building up since 2014. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. These displays really come to define villages and small towns and the people who live there. They stay up well beyond the 11th of November. In fact, the village I mentioned, Pelshaw, the councillor there now says he feels a lot of pressure. He told me they're sitting there every year thinking, how are we going to beat this? And I think many other villages and councils are now having similar discussions. Elliot, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow. GEP AI powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy, managed services, and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com.